people. I played basketball for the last time. I'd been playing basketball for several years, and that year I'd kind of hit a growth spurt, so I was at least over six feet tall, and I started for the JV basketball team. Now, a lot of my friends had moved up to varsity already, but that year I actually got to start on the team mainly because I was a foot taller than all the other kids in the Christian school. I can remember I had trouble with being aggressive. I was a big guy, but I was kind of a teddy bear. And so the coach would often nail into me that I needed to be more aggressive when going for rebounds and going up for the shot. And I can remember we were at Mississippi Valley. It was in St. Louis, Illinois. And we were playing this JV team that had called up some junior high kids to their team. So, I mean, these kids weren't even over five feet tall. They were just much smaller than I was. And there was a possession where one of the kids had grabbed a rebound and I was right next to it and I didn't box out and I wasn't aggressive. And so this four foot tall kid grabbed this rebound. The coach called a timeout and I mean, he just lit into me and he said, you need to be more aggressive. You need to really get into the game and stop being so timid. So the next play I went out there and I got the ball and I rebounded it and I thought I'm going to be really aggressive. So I brought it down and I swung my elbows this way to make sure that I had possession. What I didn't realize was the four foot tall kid was right over here when I swung my elbows and I went this way and I broke his nose and there was blood all over the floor. And so the coach was trying not to laugh at this situation, but he called me over to the bench and he said, I'm happy you're being aggressive, but you don't need to be that aggressive when you're going for a rebound. This morning, we're given a command in Ephesians 2. It says to remember Paul takes this next section of the book of Ephesians, and he's reminding us of things that we already know. Now, to remind someone of something means that you've told them to do it before. It's not new information. When you're a coach, you're not necessarily telling your team new information all the time. Sometimes you are, but you're reminding them of the fundamentals. You're reminding them of the things they need to do in order to be successful. To remind someone of something tells them of something they already No, there's much reminder language in scripture, and I believe it's because we already know a lot of what we need to do in the Christian life. We just need to be reminded to do it on a consistent basis. So Paul uses this word remember in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, and he's reminding the Ephesians of their reconciliation. That's a word that I'm going to use in this sermon, and what it means is to bring peace between two sides that have been fighting or two sides that have hostility. Maybe you've been in that situation before where you've got family members who are fighting and you're kind of caught in the middle of it and you're trying to establish peace with them, but they just don't seem to be coming eye to eye. To reconcile something means to establish peace between two sides that have been at war. Sometimes they can establish peace on their own. They just have to get over themselves and eventually they come together on something. Sometimes they need a third party to get involved and to try to make things right. And the reason Paul is reminding the Ephesians of their reconciliation is because they were once enemies of God. They were once enemies of God and they did not obey his law. They were sinners in God's sight and they were enemies of God's people, Israel, as well. So God brings reconciliation by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for their sins. And we recognize that we need peace as well. There's not a person in this room who had a right relationship with God before salvation. And by the way, it wasn't God's fault. 
God had peace with man in the Garden of Eden. If you read Genesis chapters 1 through 3, which a lot of people are doing this time of year in their Bible reading plans, you go back to the first chapters of Genesis, there's peace between God and man in the Garden. But what happens? Man disobeys the promises of God. Man says, I don't believe that God is who he says he is. So they sin. And in that sin, there comes hostility between man and God. But also from the book of Genesis, we're promised that there would be one who would come and who would bring peace. This is the ministry of reconciliation that we see from Jesus Christ. So this morning, as a church, as we look at this passage, we want to embrace unity by remembering our reconciliation. Paul is reminding us as we read this, that we have been reconciled by God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer God's enemy, but rather God calls you a son or a daughter. And because of that, we should be unified, not only with God, but with each other. And that's what Paul's trying to get at this morning. Remembering our reconciliation will remind us of the biblical truths of our salvation. And that keeps us from pride and self-dependence. As we get into this passage, we're going to start seeing that the Ephesians weren't always good, that they were separated from God. They were sinners. This passage rebukes us when we try to earn righteousness with God, showing us that we still need the grace of God in our lives to be reconciled. It also shows us how we can have unity with one another. If there's a person that's a Christian in your life and you struggle to have unity with them, whether it's in your church, in your family, a friend that you have, and you're just really struggling to be unified, you can remember your reconciliation, that you've been saved by grace and they've been saved by grace, and therefore we can be unified in Christ. So let's look at a few things we need to remember this morning. First of all, we need to remember the grace of God. Look at verse 11 with me of chapter 2. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. So as Paul is reminding us of our reconciliation, he uses this phrase, therefore, to connect us from verses 1 through 10 to this next section. Now, if you remember several weeks ago now, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It talked about personal salvation. You as a person were dead in trespasses and sins. You as a person could not earn righteousness with God. Your actions were sinful. Your thoughts were depraved. And your desires were selfish. You were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then we see that we're made alive in Christ to be his workmanship. When we get to this next section, it almost seems like Paul is repeating himself. He's going to talk about how we were dead in our sins, how Christ saved us, how we're called to live a new life. But he's not just talking about us personally. He's talking about us as a group. Even as we listen to sermons here at Sycamore Bible Church, there's sometimes when we read God's word and there's something that just I need to hear as a person in my own Christian life. There's other things that we as a church need to hear together and be unified in as a church body. And this is where Paul is pointing us, that as a church body, we as a group need to remember these things. Now, he uses the word remember, and I've already said it, implies that you already know the information that has been communicated. And we all know what we're talking about. When my wife tells me, 
did you remember to mail that package today? And, and I always have the same answer every time. Well, you didn't tell me to do that. And she looks at me and she says, yes, I did. And so I think, well, well, no, you didn't tell me to do that. And so I start thinking about my day and our conversation that we had. And it's almost like I don't want to see it. It's like that memory is right there and I just want to ignore it somehow. And it starts popping up in my mind to where it's right there. And I think, oh, she really did tell me to do that. And I go and look on the counter and that package is right there and she's left it for me. So I have to go mail it because I'd forgotten to do it. To remind someone of something means that they already know that they should be doing it. So Paul is reminding the Ephesians, first of all, of their separation. He says that you were Gentiles in the flesh. To be a Gentile just means that you're not Jewish. We know the Jews were God's chosen people, God's nation of Israel. And he says it's in the flesh. They were separated from God, not just because they were Gentiles, but because they were fleshly. Because they loved the things of the world. Because they walked in the flesh and not in the spirit. If you read the book of Romans, the Jews were separated from God as well. And Paul does a really good job in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans of explaining that the Jews were separated from God and the Gentiles were separated from God. And in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he really drives this point home. And he says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So Jews and Gentiles were separated from God because of their sin. But yet Paul is emphasizing how Gentiles were separated from God and separated from Israel because the Ephesians were Gentiles. And there weren't really that many Jewish people in Ephesus there were some, but it didn't have a large Jewish community here, there. That's why he's explaining things to them like they are Gentiles. Now, he uses the phrase that they were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. The outward sign of being God's people was circumcision. We see this in Genesis, in the early chapters when God made a promise to Abraham. It was shown through circumcision. But the Gentiles were not circumcised, and they didn't want to be. They didn't believe that they needed to be. This was not something that, as a culture, they wanted to have associated with them. But for the Jews, this was something that separated them. It was a negative term that was used for the Gentiles. And Paul is showing us here at the end of this verse, he says, You're called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh, by hands, he's showing that, hey, it's fleshly. It's not something that we need to worry about now because it's part of the old promises of God. So he reminds them of their initial separation. And then in verse 12, Paul's going to give them five ways that they were not only separated from God, but they were separated from Israel as well. First of all, he says, remember, at that time you were separated from Christ. They were separated from Christ. Now we know this is true, separated from God for eternity because of their sin. But he's not just talking about their positional separation. He's talking about how they were separated from the promises of the Messiah. As a Jewish person, you were still sinful, yes. But you knew from reading the Old Testament that God was sending Jesus, the Messiah, to come and save the world from their sins. 
But the Gentiles as a whole did not have these promises. They did not understand the promises of Jesus, the Messiah. So Paul reminds them, hey, you were separated from Israel. You didn't know the promise of God's Messiah. He secondly says that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So not only were they separated from Jesus, the Messiah, the promises of him, but also Israel as a whole, the commonwealth would be like the boundaries or the city, the nation of Israel. They were separated from the nation of Israel. They were not Israelites. In fact, it says they were alienated. They were not part of God's chosen people. Instead, they were part of these outside nations. And why is that important? Well, we know that God made promises to Israel that they would be his nation, that he would be their God. And this really plays into the third way that they were separated. It says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The fact that they did not anticipate Christ as the Messiah and they were not part of the nation of Israel means that they did not understand the promises of God. And Paul uses the word here, covenants. A covenant is a promise, a um, agreement between God and man made with God and Israel in the Old Testament. Now notice that he uses the word covenants, plural. So he's not just thinking about the Abrahamic covenant. He's not just thinking about the Davidic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, but he's thinking about all the Old Testament covenants at once that the Gentiles were not part of those promises. Now they were mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant that through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But the Gentiles were not God's chosen people. They were outside of these covenants of God. So the fact that they were separated from Christ, separated from Israel, and these promises leads them to a fourth way they were separated. It says, having no hope without God in the world. This leads them to hopelessness. When you do not know God, when you are not his child, when you, when you are not following him faithfully, it leads you to this sense of hopelessness. Hope, we know, is a confidence. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's a confidence in God and his promises. But when you don't know God, when you don't know his promises, it leads you to have no hope. And so that leads us to this fifth way that they're described without God in the world. The Greek word that's used here is a theos. Theos is the word for God. A means without, so they are without God. But it's also where we get our word for atheist. An atheist is a person who is without God. Now, these Greeks and Gentiles had gods and goddesses. It wasn't like they were just nihilists and they didn't believe in any kind of being. But they were without the one true God of Israel. Because they did not have the promises of Christ's Messiah, because they were not part of Israel, because they did not have these covenants and were hopeless, they were people without God. And this is the most important characterization of the Gentiles. Their greatest problem was not that they weren't Israelites. Their greatest problem was not the covenants. Their problem was that they were without God in the world. This leads them to utter hopelessness. So let's remember this morning that the same sinful fate that plagued the Ephesians was our status as well before salvation. We were hopeless. 
We were helpless and we were dead in trespasses and sins. We went our own ways and we wanted our own desires. We were destined for destruction. And I don't bring this up so that we can just loathe and self-pity, but rather to remind us to appreciate the grace of God. The grace of God is not just important for the Ephesians to remember, it's important for us to remember as well, that we've been saved by grace. And every time we think that we can earn righteousness in our lives, we need to repent. The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness of God. We can't minimize our past. Rather, we can thank God for his grace. Remember Jonah last week, who we said loved to embrace the grace of God in his own life. But when it came to God showing grace to others, he didn't really want to see that happen. So remember the grace of God. And remember this, it's easy sometimes as Christians, especially as you've been a Christian for a while, to let the grace of God become old practice. To not see it as this new and exciting work in your life. And we can change that by remembering our reconciliation. By reading God's word and saying, it is amazing that we have been reconciled by God. And seeing that in new eyes. Secondly, we not only want to remember God's grace, we want to remember Christ's work. We want to remember the work that Christ has done in our lives. We first see it described in verse 15 or verse 13 of chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. This contrasts their condition. You were once formerly enemies of God, enemies of Israel separated. You are now brought near by God. By Christ and Christ's work. This idea of nearness and far off shows us an affinity. It shows us a close relationship. I'll give you an example. Last night, my dad and I went to the Colts game, and it's such a big stadium that you go to. And my dad came and met me at my house, and we drove up together so we didn't have to both pay for parking, and we sat by each other, and he stayed with us last night. Now, what would happen if my dad had gotten the tickets and he said, Well, I'll just meet you at the game? And then, yeah, I probably would have never found him. And he said, well, your ticket is over here, and my ticket's on the other side of the stadium. And I'm like, well, okay. And then I'm like, well, we'll see each other at halftime. And I, I'm waving to him, hey, Dad. And he's just kind of not looking at me and trying to avoid me while I'm there. You wouldn't think that he really liked me. You wouldn't think that we had a close relationship. The spatial distance between us, the fact that we walked in together, we hung out together, and that we cheered for the same team, shows our family relationship. And there were people there that are like, oh, I bet that's his dad and that that's his son. This nearness shows our affinity, our relationship with God. Those who were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And we know the blood of Christ is essential to our salvation. Blood shows life, but it also was required for a sacrificial death in the Old Testament. The animals couldn't just be strangled. It had to be a bloody death. And therefore, the blood of Christ was important in our atonement. It is through the blood of Christ that we have been reconciled. And then Paul describes it. He says, for he himself is our peace. It doesn't just say that he gave us peace. It says that he is our peace. By his person, 
and work, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's now describing the work of Christ and what he's done in our lives. Christ's work of reconciliation has made us one body. He takes the Jews and he takes the Gentiles and they become one body in Christ. And this relationship is characterized by peace, by the peace of Jesus Christ. There were several expressions in scripture of how the Jews and the Gentiles were separated, not only physically, but metaphorically as well. First of all, it was seen in the division ethnically between Jews and Gentiles. This was represented by circumcision. The Jews were circumcised, the Gentiles were not circumcised. That shows the division between them. Secondly, there was a division in the morality of the Jews and Gentiles. The Jews followed the law, the Gentiles did not follow the law. And then third, if that weren't, were not enough, in the temple there was a literal wall between Jews and Gentiles and where they worshipped God. So if you were a Gentile, you could not help but notice the separation that you had between the Jewish people. But now in Christ, he's taken two things that were separate and he's made them one body. And what is that body? It's the church. The church is a new entity. It's not something from the Old Testament. It's something that God has made new in the New Testament and it's one unified body of God. God takes people that are different, that are diverse, they have different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures, and they become one body in Christ. I mentioned at the beginning of the service the worship scene in heaven that we're going to see when there's thousands and even millions of Christians worshiping God. Do you realize how diverse that's going to be? It's not going to be a whole bunch of people that look like us. But in fact, Jesus says it's going to be people of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. That'll be such a cool thing to see, the diversity of the church. This happens through the work of Jesus Christ. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, the Jews and Gentiles become one. But there wasn't just separation between the Jews and Gentiles. There was separation between us and God. In the temple, there was a veil between God and his presence and the people. But what happened when Christ died on the cross? The veil was torn in two. And what does that show us? We now have access to God by what Christ has done. This is all part of the work of Christ. And it leads us to verse 15. It says, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, so making peace. So these commandments, this law, the Old Testament law that the Jews were under, now in Christ is no more. We're now under the law of Christ. This gives us peace, not just vertically with God, but horizontally with each other. We're no longer bound by the Old Testament law. We're no longer bound to make animal sacrifices. Instead, we're called by God to live by the law of Christ, which we know is to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. All of us who have been separated now have peace. And this peace is shown by the unity that we have in the church. Alistair Bake says this. He says, The cross is where reconciliation is provided, 
And the church is where reconciliation is proclaimed. And it's our hope that every church service we have is one that proclaims the reconciliation of God. That the songs we sing remind us of the gospel, that we have peace with God. As we sing songs like, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, we proclaim the reconciliation, the work that Christ has done for us, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we as a church have a responsibility to proclaim that to the world by our worship. So this morning, let's remember Jesus Christ. He is called the Prince of Peace. He brings peace into our lives. Remember his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. His birth, how he took on flesh. He remember his life and his perfect obedience to the Father, which led him to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. Remember his suffering for sin, how he didn't have to die on the cross for our sins, but how he willingly died on the cross for sins so that we could have a relationship with God. And then remember his resurrection, how he rose from the dead, confirming that the Father accepted his sacrifice and giving us hope and life and death. Remember how he ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, giving us access to him. As Christians, when we grow tired and when the grace of God starts not becoming what it once was in our lives, we can remember the reconciliation of Christ, how he has made us a new body. And we can remember how the gospel changes our life. When you struggle with pride in your life and self-dependence, you can remember that there's nothing in your life that's good apart from God. Despite how good of a person you might be or how capable you are, you could not save yourself from sin. We can remember to trust in the Lord because of how we've been reconciled by Christ. Because he has made a way for us to God. When we struggle with fear, we can remember that Jesus is our great high priest and how he gives us access to the Father. And finally, this reconciliation also should cause us to embrace unity as a church. When you struggle with another church member, when you struggle with another family member who is a believer, you can say, you know what? I've been saved by God's grace. They've been saved by God's grace. So we can embrace unity together in the body of Christ. We can remember Christ's work. Finally, this morning, let's remember our peace. Our peace. In verse 16, continuing to talk about the work of Christ, it says, It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. We see some of the results now of reconciliation. And we see this word reconcile used, which means to eliminate hostility between two groups and therefore bringing peace. We know the cross was the instrument by which we are reconciled. And the result of this is that it kills hostility between us and God. It was never God's intention for us to have hostility with him, but it was brought into our lives because of sin. In verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, 
brings peace. But it does not bring peace between the saved and the unsaved. In fact, Jesus says it does the opposite. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but rather the sword. And fathers and sons are going to fight, and brothers and are going to fight with each other. Why? Because the unsaved reject the message of the gospel. But in Jesus' life, he proclaimed peace. And even after his life, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed both to Jews and to Gentiles on how they can have peace with God. We see that in the book of Acts. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. That even after Christ's life and death and resurrection, in the book of Acts, the peace of God is proclaimed to the world, to both Jews and Gentiles. He says he preached peace to you who are far off, talking about the Gentiles, and to you who are near, talking about the Jews. Both needed reconciliation from God. And then finally in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We see that because of our reconciliation, we now have access to God. There's no longer that dividing wall. There's no longer the veil, but it's now been torn in two. We have access to God. Rather than being his enemies, we are called his sons and daughters. So let's appreciate this morning the peace of God that we have in the gospel. How the gospel creates peace in our lives. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if he's not your Lord and Savior, your life will never be characterized by true, everlasting peace. You may have times that are better than others. You may find some kind of happiness in the world. But you will never have true inner peace. And remember that peace is not dependent on your circumstances, but you can have circumstances that are terrible and still have peace. Christ said to his disciples that in the world you only have tribulation, but he has come so that we can have peace. It's so amazing, the Christians that I know that have gone through tremendous suffering in their lives, but yet they still tend to be the most peaceful people you would ever meet. And why is that? It's because the peace of God is not dependent on their circumstances. It comes from their relationship with God. It may not look like they have peace in their circumstances of life, but they have peace with their Savior, Jesus Christ, and the peace of knowing where they're going when they die. When you go to funerals, there's a huge difference between the funeral of a saved person and an unsaved person. In an unsaved person's life and death, there's no peace. There's no confidence. There's no assurance of where they're going when they die. But in the funeral of a believer, there may be sadness. There may be mourning. But there is a great sense of peace, of knowing where they've gone. So we can appreciate the peace of God, how we can have access to the Father by the work of Christ and the grace of God. Remember that illustration I used at the beginning of the sermon about basketball. We all know that Tim coaches basketball here, and yet Tim doesn't play basketball anymore. At least I don't think you play basketball anymore, Tim. So if we go and watch one of Tim's games, we're not going to watch Tim run up and down the court unless he's chasing the ref around somewhere, but he's not going to be the one dribbling the ball or shooting the ball. But what does a coach do? Well, he instructs the players on the plays, he sets up the system, he calls timeouts, he tells the refs the calls that they should make, he represents the team, but he also teaches 
the players. And what's interesting is there's a lot of things in basketball that I can't do. I'm not athletic enough to dunk a basketball. Tim could coach me for days upon days, and I'd never be able to dunk a basketball or run a four-minute mile. But what I notice coaches do is they emphasize the fundamentals. You're dribbling, you're passing, you're shooting, boxing out, following through on your shot. And just time and time again, whether I watch Little League basketball, high school basketball, college, pro, they focus on the fundamentals. And why is that? These are things that you learn on day one of learning basketball. It's because those are the things that players often forget And it may not matter how talented you are or how much athleticism you have. If you forget the fundamentals, you don't end up becoming a good player. And it leads to things like turnovers and fouls and all these other problems within playing the game of basketball. So this morning, we want to remember something that's a fundamental concept, our reconciliation, how we have peace with God. But we lastly want to see how remembering our reconciliation keeps us from certain things. It first of all keeps us from pride. It keeps us from pride. Because we have peace with God, because we recognize that Christ is the one who's made peace in our lives, we know that we couldn't have peace in ourselves, that we could not have access to God on our own. And this stops us from being prideful. This reminds us that, yes, we needed the grace of God. Now, when it comes down to it, we are just dust. And there's going to be one day when our normal human bodies return back to dust. Secondly, it keeps us from self-dependence. It's a related idea, but it stops us from thinking that we can do everything on our own. It reminds us every day that we're weak, that we need the Lord, and that we need to trust in his power and his work in our lives. It also reminds us that we need each other as well. You know, there's preachers that you can listen to that are probably better preachers than I am, and you can just listen to them on your your phone. But guess what? You don't have the community of Christ. You don't have the body of Christ here as a church. We don't just come to church to listen to a sermon. We come to church to be united as a body, to share in fellowship, to share in accountability, to share in prayer And it reminds us that none of us are strong enough to live the Christian life on our own, but we are dependent on God and we're dependent on each other. So this morning, remember your reconciliation with God and how it causes us to have unity with others, not being self-dependent. Thirdly, if we remember our reconciliation, it'll keep us from disunity. It'll keep us from disunity. It stops us from thinking that we're better than others. We're reminded, hey, you know what? I've been saved by grace. This other person's been saved by grace. And when I start complaining about them, when I start thinking that they don't belong in the body of Christ, I'm reminded of what kind of sinner I was when Christ saved me. And lastly, it keeps us from fear. Remembering our reconciliation keeps us from fear. There's a lot of things that we can worry about in life. There's a lot of things that we can be afraid of, how the politics are going to work out in our country, what kind of foreign affairs are happening, what kind of things are happening even in our life. We can have fear of man. We can have fear of the future. But in Christ, there's no longer a need to fear because he's given us peace. He's given us the peace of God, which passes all understanding. 
So when you talk to your unsaved friends and they say, hey, I don't know what's going on with the world. I'm afraid. You can say, hey, I don't know what's going on with the world either, but I have the peace of God, which passes all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remembering our reconciliation not only helps us be transformed in the Christian life, it keeps us from these tendencies of pride and self-dependence and fear and disunity that stop us from becoming one in the body of Christ. So as we close this morning, my prayer for us is that we would remember what Christ has done in our lives, ultimately making peace with God and peace with others, and that we would embrace unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the peace that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. We know that we were your enemies. We know that we did not deserve your salvation that you offer to us, but we're thankful for it. We're thankful that we can call you our father and that you call us sons and daughters. May we remember these promises this morning. May we sing about them and may we proclaim them to others that we come into contact with. May we be faithful to share this gospel with others who are lost. And help us, Lord, to be unified as a church, to remember that we can't do these things on our own, but we need the body of Christ in our lives. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.